take your Bibles and open them up with me to uh, Luke chapter 19. It's going to be our text uh, this morning, Luke 19. And uh, we're going to be in verses 28 through verse 44. And the title of today's sermon is A King Like No Other. And I think that we've been seeing that all along as we've been going through Luke. But I really want to see where, I uh, want us to see where Luke is taking our minds and centering them on the kingship of Christ, because you're going to see a change in today, in the context, in the geographical region, what's being accomplished, and even still today, what we celebrate on Good Friday. And so uh, this is something uh, that I believe that Luke is showing us, that we serve a king that is like no other. Jean Bedel Bacasso was a military officer and was head of the state or the military state of the Central Republic of Africa or Central African Republic. In 1966, he staged a coup d'etat where he ended up overthrowing the government with his military leaders. And he was very successful. He was president all the way up until 1976. But being president wasn't enough for Bukasa. He wanted world recognition. He wanted power. He wanted control. He wanted to be recognized as one of the great leaders. So he believed that becoming a monarch would help him achieve his goal. So in 1976, he declared himself to be king over the Central African Republic. He set his date for his coronation for December the 4th, 1977. And what was significant about that day is that it was the 173rd anniversary of the coronation of uh, Napoleon Bonaparte. This was a clear statement that Bukasa saw in himself someone who was going to take over. He was coming as one who would conquer and he wanted the world to see this great revolution that he planned to unfold before the eyes of the world. He wanted to make a name and to leave a legacy for himself. And he spared no expense on his coronation. They hired workers to paint all of the buildings that were in the region of the capital where his coronation would take place. They drove out all of the lower income businesses. They got rid of all of the lower income housing. They removed everyone who wasn't anybody from the area where the coronation was going to be. They spent millions of dollars upgrading their hotels for all of the national dignitaries that they had planned and hoped would come in to celebrate this coronation. Make this uh, one who had become only the third king in the world at that particular time. He spent millions of dollars on limousines. He bought uh, 60 Mercedes-Benz limousines from Germany. It cost over $5,000 per vehicle just to have them shipped. He spent $2.5 million on a throne that you'll see a picture in just a moment of him seated on. He spent $2.5 million on the crown that would be placed on his head and over $4 million on the horses and carriage that would carry him through the streets to his coronation. His coronation, his, the celebration, the parade would be led by his nine wives and 29 children. His favorite wife was wife number nine. 
He had a custom dress made just for her at the expense of $80,000. This time you'll see an image of Bacasa on his throne there, 1977. That was December the 4th. In total, there was over $30 million spent on this coronation, which was at that time over half of their nation's budget. Bukasa wanted power. He wanted to be noticed. He wanted to be respected in the world. He wanted to be remembered, to leave a legacy. His reign lasted for three years. And today we are 45 years on the other side of when Bukasa became king for this three-year period. And I just have a question and you don't have to answer it out loud. How many of you remember this dude? If you do, some of you may remember, there was very little fanfare. They sent out over 25 invitations to world dignitaries and only 600 responded. Certainly wasn't the response that he had hoped for. You can go ahead and remove the video, Brother Ricky, because in contrast to Bukasa's three-year reign as king, which was over 45 years ago, and hardly any of us remember that. Some of you have never heard of that name. This was news to you. But contrast that with somebody named Jesus Christ, who was also a king, who existed over 2,000 years ago. And one day, entering into Jerusalem, which we would know as his coronation, his victory march, many of your Bibles have over the heading, the triumphal entry of Christ. Most of the people there laying down palm branches, impoverished under the Roman regime. But they laid down these palm branches, hailing him as king and singing praises to God. There was no media, no dignitaries, no royal parade. Within just a few days, three, just several days after this triumphal entry where everybody is celebrating and hailing Jesus as king, the same crowd is now crying out, crucify him. It only took a few short days for this king to be arrested, defamed, beaten, and crucified. Many would say that perhaps it was the shortest kingship in all of histories where on Monday, everybody was hailing him as king and were yelling out for him to be crucified on Thursday. And yet, every Palm Sunday, the world takes notice. Every single calendar that's printed has this day marked down on it. Big contrast between King Jesus and King Bukasa. This one who was king on earth for three days. Versus one who was king only 45 years ago for three years. You see, Jesus truly is a king like no other. Several things need to be exposed as we enter into this text that you heard Pastor Matt read just a minute ago. And the first thing that I want to bring to our attention this morning is the fact that Jesus was not and was never a victim. 
He was not and was never a victim. Jesus was never the target of injustice. He was the eternal judge who had come to make all wrongs right. Jesus was not the victim of a failed and corrupt political system. In fact, read your scriptures. Jesus handpicked the dignitaries who would be in charge, who would ensure that he would be put to death. He had preordained for Herod and Pontius Pilate to be in those positions. He was never a victim because he predetermined every event and circumstance leading up to that point, that very point in history and every point afterwards. He was never a victim. He was in complete control. And we know this because Jesus has been telling his disciples this very thing and what to expect when this day would come. All the way on this journey leading up to being in Jerusalem. But they misunderstood him. They didn't understand what he was saying. They thought that Jesus was going to enter Jerusalem and they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. They're excited. The whole city is in a it's in a buzz and it's in a craze and everybody's just on pins and needles because they are expecting this grand thing to happen. Now let's think about this point. Jesus controls all future events. I want you to think, I want that to be a prevailing thought in our minds this morning as we go through this. Let me read, starting in our text in verse 28, it says, When he drew near to Bethpage in Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find the colt. How did Jesus know that? He knew it because he was God. He said, upon entering, you will find a cold tide and on which no one has ever sat. How did he know that? Because he was God. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So what do we see in verse 32? Those who were sent went away and found it just as what he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, you can only imagine what the owners must think. They're like, hey, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the master, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. Jesus tells his disciples, disciples exactly where to go, exactly what they are going to find, exactly what to do, and exactly what would happen. They're going to go into a village, and there's going to be an unbroken colt. No one had ever sat on this fold of this donkey. This was a colt not yet broken in. The owners will confront you. They will ask you, what are you doing? What do you think you're doing? Doesn't belong to you. And when they do, you tell them the Lord has need for it and they're just going to let you take it. And that's exactly what happened. 
You see, Luke wants us to know at no point in this saga was Jesus ever a victim. He doesn't want us to think at ever at any point was Jesus not in control of the events leading to his death. Jesus was never caught off guard and he had divine knowledge and control of every event, the details of everything that is going on, both past, present, and still today, even future. And this is exactly what happens. This is also a picture of supreme authority. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever seen anyone, anybody sit on an unbroken horse or donkey for the very first time? Let me explain to you how that goes in two words, not well. You don't just sit on a horse or a donkey that has never been sat on in its life. Do you know why? Because that donkey or that colt, that horse has not been broken in. It doesn't know what's going on. And so it's going to do its best to remove you from off of its premises. It doesn't want you on him because it's not yet been broken. So Jesus knows this donkey is not unbroken and that's the one he requests. That's the one he says to bring here. He knows no one has set on it, but he also knows this. That donkey knows its maker. That's what Isaiah said. He said the colt, the donkey knows its owner, but you Israel does not. You do not. And so here, Jesus knows that this donkey will yield to it because Jesus is its maker. Pretty smart donkey. But then there, the owners that the disciples will have to contend with. Let's just paint our own scenario. Let's say that you and another are going into the city of Memphis and there's a bunch of Harley guys over there and there's a brand new Harley Davidson, never been touched, and you just get on it, or you just grab it and you're about to leave. How do you think that's going to go? Do you think anybody's going to object? And not just one owner, this, the scriptures are pretty clear, it's plural. They were probably a business, probably uh, several, obviously there were several that were involved in this. And yet this was a scenario that was being painted and what Luke is showing us. And guess what? They're going to do what any owner will do. What do you think you're doing? That's not yours. But when they do, all you have to do is simply say, the Lord has need of it. And what they're going to do is the same thing the donkey is going to do. They're going to submit. And that's exactly what happens. You see the details of what Luke is showing us about this king? He is a king like no others. He knows that the owners will just submit. The donkey is going to submit. The owners are going to submit. Jesus is in perfect control, but he also has perfect authority and he can exercise it at will. He can exercise it how he sees fit, how he desires and what he wants to accomplish. That is what happens. Folks, that's our king. 
This is the king that we submit ourselves to. And we recognize that authority. Jesus is also doing this to fulfill scriptures. It says, and as he, as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that had seen, uh, been seen, had seen saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. What does all of this show us? Not just the event of the day, but the fact that that day was predicted 500 years earlier. So this shows us that not only is Jesus control of the events presently in his incarnation, he knew the event would take place because he declared that it would 500 years earlier through the prophet Zechariah. This is what Zechariah said in uh, Zechariah 9.9. Again, written 500 years before Luke. Rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, but not just any donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. In other words, one that has not yet been broken, one that is unbroken, has never been ridden on before. This is how your king will appear. 500 years before this took place, the prophet Zechariah, moved by the Spirit of God, knew this event would take place, recorded it, and wrote it down. The details of how all of this fits together shows us that we serve a king that is like no other. And the people knew this. They respond to it. In fact, they respond to it by shouting Psalm 119 and verse 26, where they were saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. This is what David said would happen when he come in. And this is what they do. They begin to proclaim that Jesus has blessed this one who comes in the name of the Lord. Everything that is going on is pointing to the fact Jesus is no victim he is not falling into the hands of unforeseen and unfortunate circumstances. He is the one controlling the events. He knows what's going to happen. He sees all things, but he has predicted and he's prophesied through his, through his prophets that these things would take place in exactly this way. And not one detail is ever gone untouched. He fulfills the law to the very nth degree. And so we see that our king is a king like no other. This is a time of celebration because all of the prophecies that have been said about Jesus have been leading up to this moment are coming to fruition. And here's the other thing that's interesting. And folks, I want you to think about this. The people had no choice but to rejoice. They didn't have a choice but to rejoice. And let me show you where the scripture affirms that. It says not everyone was happy, right? Not everybody was happy. The Pharisees certainly were not celebrating in this moment. In fact, they believe blasphemy is taking place because all of these are shouting out praises to God and, and celebrating King Jesus. And they tell Jesus, look at what they say in Luke 19, 39. Some of the Pharisees of the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. You got to understand they've been trying to trap Jesus this whole time, but they're realizing they can't stop him. 
They're been trying to shut him up and he just won't be quiet. And when they hear the people in Jerusalem praising him as king, shouting out, Hail King Jesus, they become infuriated. And they don't recognize Jesus as king, as Messiah, as God. They do, they're rejecting him. And they're like, this is blasphemy. Stop them from saying these things about you. We know that you're a teacher, but they all think that you're God, that you're Messiah. Rebuke them. Tell them that you're not the king. But remember, what did the Old Testament say? It said that there would be rejoicing in Jerusalem upon the entering of Jesus, this day of coronation. And this was how Jesus answered them in Luke 19, 40. I tell you, if they were silent, the very rocks would praise. They would be shouting out and crying out the very same things. Why? Because I've already said and declared that upon entering to Jerusalem, this is what will happen. You see, Jesus is in control. He's sovereign. Past, present, and future. He knows all of this that is going to happen. And he is saying that this is the point in history. This is the very point that history has been claiming and all of creation is submitting and is recognizing this very moment. You know, really, when you think about it, this is an amazing thing. Because the very ones who should have known who Jesus was, who did know the law, who knew the prophecies, were the, the ones who were the most educated, were the most ignorant in the crowd. They absolutely were completely blown away and they should have known. And what Jesus is ultimately saying to them is, as well as it is a prophecy, is an insult to them because he's saying that the rocks could recognize what you can't. A donkey can recognize what you can't. What an insult. But in this moment, right before their eyes, the law of God, the prophecies of God are being fulfilled and they can't even recognize it. No matter how hard they tried, they were unable to stop him. They were unable to shut him up. The Pharisees could not stop the parade. They couldn't stop the thousands from rushing, trying to touch him, to get close to him. But then a shift in our story, because what we see is cheers turn into tears. In verse 41, and when he drew near, and he saw the city, he wept over it. It's interesting, all the way, this whole journey, what we've been seeing repeated seven times, Luke has said, on his way to Jerusalem, 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 as he neared Jerusalem. And then all of a sudden, we see that he finally gets there. And Luke says, and when he saw the city, he begins to weep. On that day that the disciples, on that day that the crowds, that all of these who were professing Jesus in this moment, they were professors, but not possessors of Christ, most of them. They were celebrating and Jesus weeps. And he weeps because he knows what they don't. Again, he knows the future. Many think that this is the triumphal entry of Christ. Again, how many of your Bibles say triumphal entry there on the top part? Yeah. 
Most of your Bibles say that's what it is. But here's what Jesus knows. This isn't a triumphal, uh, a triumphal entry. This isn't a coronation like so many think. This is not a victory parade. This is a funeral procession. And it's not just Jesus' funeral. He's not weeping over his own death. He never wept over his own death. He's weeping over the lack of hope that exists for this city that has been an instrumental part in the Old Covenant. This city that everything that God has done up to this point has been giving and blessing into this city where all of the sacrifices pointing to Christ, the law being read, being practiced, Passover, where the pilgrimage would be taken, where everybody would come and celebrate all the things that God has done, all the law of God. And all of that's about to come to an end. The sacrifices are about to stop. He's bringing a close to that chapter. You know, there are only two times in Scripture where Jesus weeps. Do you know that? John eleven thirty five, 35, where he weeps at a funeral over a friend. And then here, we see him weeping over the destruction, the death, and the judgment that's coming upon Jerusalem. I think it's interesting, don't you, that he weeps and in both contexts. It's at it's death that he weeps. Whenever Lazarus died, he was outside of the tomb crying with Mary and Martha and those who were closest to Lazarus. And now Jesus is entering into this place and where everybody else is celebrating the coronation, the celebration, the kingdom of God is coming. They think some grand thing is about to happen. And Jesus just breaks down and begins sobbing when he sees the city. Let me show you something interesting. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica and he writes to them in regards to those who have died. Remember that most, this is used in almost every funeral I've ever been to. And he says, I'd not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who are asleep. And what he is doing is he's writing to them in the context of a funeral, in the context of losing a loved one. And this is what he said to believers. He said, if this one who has died is in Christ, you do not weep as those who do not have any hope. Your weeping is different at a funeral where the deceased is a believer than if the deceased has no testimony of faith at all. I've been in funerals for over 20 years, hundreds of them, and I can tell you there is a difference in a funeral where the testimony of the deceased is one of faith and, that one, uh, and, and, and the opposite of one who is not a believer. It's different. It's not the same. And so Paul makes this contrast. You see, when someone dies without Christ... There's no hope. There's no hope. When Jesus weeps, it's interesting here. I took that thought and I began to think about these two dynamics of Jesus weeping because he talks about the two dynamics in 1 Thessalonians. And so I looked it up and in the Greek, when Jesus wept at Lazarus' funeral, completely different word translated as wept. Both Greek words translate weep, but in Lazarus, it just simply means soft tears. He knows what he's about to do. He knows Lazarus is about to come back from the dead. And what Jesus is doing is in his humanity, he's identifying with those around him that he cares 
about them. We do not have a high priest that can't sympathize with our weaknesses, do we? He's a king like no other, remember. But the Greek word that is used when Jesus wept over Jerusalem is the strongest form in the Greek language to describe weeping. And it, in, and it connotes the idea of wailing and sobbing hysterically. What's the difference between these two images? Is that one, there's weeping with hope. And here he's weeping over the hopelessness of Jerusalem. He's weeping over the hopeless state of these whose eyes are blinded. He's showing us weeping without hope. Luke 19.42 says, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Jesus' anguish over Jerusalem is over their superficiality, their hypocrisy, their shallowness and rejection of his word and the inevitable divine wrath that would soon follow. In verse 42, the word would, a lot of times we, we, we use that word and we say that that means Jesus says that he's wishing. It's wishful thinking. But actually the word means to imagine a different circumstance. And what Jesus is doing in front of them is in imagining them that if he had known on the day on this day, the things that make for peace, but they are hidden from your eyes. You can't know them. The reverse is true. They do not know peace. They do not know what it means to be forgiven of their sins. They do not know Jesus as the Messiah and as their personal Savior. And so Jesus weeps over this hopeless situation. They're singing praises. They're throwing down palm branches. They're hailing him as king. But in three days, what do they do? The same ones who are celebrating will be yelling out for him to be crucified at the expense or at the release of Barabbas, a known criminal. But even more than that, Jesus is weeping because their judgment is sealed Verse 33 through 44 show us that the days, he says, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set a barricade around you. Folks, let me tell you something. If Jesus tells his disciples to go into this city, you're going to find an unbroken cold. Get him when the owners confront you. Let them, tell them the Lord has need for them and they're going to do it. And all of these events can happen. They take place. When you see 500-year-old prophecies fulfilling, what Jesus is doing now is pointing to AD 70 AD when Titus Flavius is going to lead Rome against Jerusalem and is going to destroy them. It's going to happen. But what he's doing here is he's sealing their fate. Because he says it's going to happen, it's most assuredly going to happen. So he says, this is what's going to happen. They're going to set a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side and tear you down, tear you down to the ground. Your children, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. If you ever want to know what the siege of Jerusalem looked like, read the works of Josephus who records in great detail what took place in AD 70 under Titus Flavius. 
And they will, they will describe for you the most horrific details of what took place ever in history where they literally starved the city out. They besieged them to the point that no one could come out. And when all of their water supply was gone, when all of the food supplies were gone, Titus Flavius records that they began to eat their own. They would kill and eat their own. They had gone mad and crazy. And when Titus Flavius came in ultimately to destroy the city, he completely and utterly burned it down. Archaeologists say that there's not one stone. There's no stones that can be found. There would be heaps of stones. But what they had concluded that the fires were so intense that the stones themselves were eaten up. And Jesus is sealing their fate. Jerusalem is that city that has been the epicenter of the promises of God. People had traveled far and wide to come and offer sacrifices and to hear the word of God preached. Jerusalem had been so blessed by God and now comes under the condemnation of God. God sent prophets, but they stoned them. He said in Matthew 24, I had sent prophet after prophet, but you stoned them. How often I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks. They ate the Passover lamb, but when the lamb was right in front of them, they wanted to crucify it. They listened to the law of God being read and followed its teaching, but they failed to know that the one that the law, the one in whom the law was written about. They're utterly blind. Their fate is sealed and there's no way to escape the judgment of God. And Jesus weeps. You know, I, I've questioned all week long, what, what is Luke wanting to, to show us? What's the Spirit of God through Luke showing us about God? We just got through reading a parable of the ten minas, or the, the minas and the servants. And we just got through reading and, and preaching through the two judgments, the judgment for the saved and the judgment for the wicked. He refers to the wicked as his, as his enemies. That's who he's talking about here. If you're not his friend, you're his enemy. And if we're not careful, I think we get a picture of God, of being this cruel God who delights in the death of the wicked. But what does Scripture say? On one hand, it shows us that it pleased the Father to bruise and crush his Son. And we see that because of the, the magnitude with which the sacrifice overwhelmed the sin of his people. That's what we see, that it pleased the Father. Only Jesus could be the acceptable sacrifice. But at the same time, God says he takes no delight in the death of the wicked. God's not finding pleasure in people being blind and going to hell. He's not pleased with these events. And he shows us here, I believe, a way to emulate Christ we should never delight in anybody's death. We should never delight in anybody's fate when it's judgment. We have to be careful here, don't we? I can name several people looking at in the world and think to myself, boy, they're going to get what's coming to them. I think we need to sit back sometimes and we just need to understand that we serve a king like no other. And the subject should look like it's king. 
We should never have this idea that God is finding pleasure in the death of enemies. That God is some cruel-hearted God who is pleased because of the hardness of man's heart and the blindness of their eyes. So what does it look like when we say that Jesus is king? Um, heard this a long time ago. Many of you have already seen the video. I've, I think I showed it eight years ago here. Some of you, you might see this for the first time. I typically stay away from videos and things in my sermons. But S.M. Lockridge can say this far better than me. I've read it before and it just doesn't come the same. And so I've asked Brother Ricky to play this. What does it mean when we say Jesus is a king like no other? Brother Ricky. The Bible says my king is a king of the Jews. He's a king of Israel. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of the ages. He's a king of heaven. He's a king of glory. He's a king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He I wonder if you know him. He's a key to knowledge. He's a wellspring. 
when Jesus came into Jerusalem, I want you to think of this, he rode in on a borrowed donkey. He was hung on a cross that didn't belong to him. It was meant for Barabbas. He was buried in a borrowed tomb belonging to Joseph of Arimathea. But when he ascended, he ascended to occupy a throne that no other king has ever occupied and no other king will ever occupy again. And one day Jesus is going to return, brothers and sisters. And when he does, he's not going to return on a donkey. He's going to return on a horse. He's going to come conquering and he's going to come bringing in the new Jerusalem, the new heaven and the new earth. Our king is like no other. Let me pray for us. Father, as we hear your word preached and as we think of the things that you want us to know about who you are, we know that there is none like you, that there is no other God, no other king, no other one who even professes to be or self-appointed king or dictator, no president, no world leader, nobody who will ever be comparable to you. And so, Lord, we give you glory today through your word, through your truth, that you are never a victim of circumstance. You were in control the whole time. And Lord, I thank you that you are still in control today. You are controlling the events that are going on today. Nowhere in your word, Lord, do we see that you ever take your hand off of anything taking place in this world. And we know especially, Lord, for believers that you're working all things together for good to those who they're called, who are according to your purpose. Lord, you're conforming us to the very image of your son, Christ. Lord, I pray. I pray if anyone is here today and they realize now that Jesus is king. And they have a desire in their heart to know you as Lord, that Lord, today you would become their king. And they would become your child. Lord, I pray for your great salvation to work. And Lord, for your sanctification to work in those of us who profess you, help us to live like you are a king, like no other. And like you are our king. Lord, help us to examine our hearts this morning. Because there were two people in the crowd that day. Those who faked worship and those who truly worshiped. Lord, if there are those this morning just going through the motions, Lord, I pray that you would reveal to them the hypocrisy and the blindness of their own hearts and that they would desire to cry out to you for salvation. May you get glory through this word and through this service. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.